This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Monday, the 12th of April, and we're broadcasting on CFUR 88.7. Great show for you today. It's a panel discussion about democratizing our land here in British Columbia. I've got uh, Darcy Reppin, former mayor of Telqua, just won 11% of the vote for the new rural BC party in the last provincial election. He's returning to the program. So is Megan Curzons from the Cumberland Forest Society. And uh, a new friend of ours, uh, James Steddle. Uh, he's from Stop the Spray BC. You might uh, recognize Stop the Spray. They're the ones with the anti-glyphosate billboards up and down Highway 97. So one of the, so this interview arose out of an organic discussion uh, that was taking place on Twitter, which I normally consider to be a wretched hive of scum and villainy. But uh, uh, nevertheless, it's produced these fine folks and this fine conversation. Um, what all three of you have expressed interest in and are working on um, in different capacities in different places is this idea of greater community control over the forest lands around us, democratizing that control both economically and politically. And so um, I'm wondering if first off, Megan, you've got an organization that has kind of systematized that process. And for those who didn't hear your last interview, I'm wondering if you could take people through what the Cumberland Forest Society does. Yes, I can. Um, so the context that we're working in is the uh, ENM land grant on the east, southeast quadrant of Vancouver Island, which was a, a, a Hudson Bay company into BC entering Confederation land transfer that happened between a guy named Robert Dunsmuir and the province of British Columbia that resulted in 2 million acres of land, including all waterways, creek bottoms, lake bottoms, uh, being um, uh, transferred into his ownership in exchange for building a railway from Esquimalt to Nanaimo. Um, and we on the Southeast quadrant of Vancouver Island are still living the legacy of that land transfer, which has resulted in the, the transfer of, of land and waterway and riverway and lake assets to subsequent resource extraction companies who then at different points in time would flip into the development model, um, uh, working hand in hand with um, um, uh, municipal governments that walked lockstep with developers for many, many years, which we're only beginning to see a bit of a shift in that in our region, which is exciting. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and also the fragmentation of ownership too. So we have a, many scenarios where the trees are owned by one party and the land is owned by someone else, or there is a random park somewhere, but then we find out the trees aren't actually owned as part of the park. So we have this very sort of um, mutated, fragmented landscape and a real mix of uh, private timber land ownership and, um, and, uh, and as people are aware, sort of residential development that's going through the roof because people are migrating to our part of the world. 
um, from other parts of BC. Um, so uh, our organization uh, 20 years ago realized that the land base around the community in which we live, um, where everyone was kind of wandering the forest and enjoying themselves was all privately owned um, and decided to start buying it back essentially. So we decided to engage um, in the same economic paradigm as the uh, owners of the landscape and uh, begin a process of acquiring. Uh, acquiring land from forest companies is way better than acquiring land that's already been upzoned or reshaped or reframed into some other um, status. Um, although we're riding that edge right now where we're, you know, we're competing with the timelines of resource development companies flipping into um, uh, commercial and residential development. Like we are, we are seriously in a lockstep race right now around acquiring um, working forest or upland's resource zoned uh, land assets in our case, um, uh, for ecological and low impact uh, recreation access, we're not uh, doing forestry. However, if we could move more quickly um, and secure more resources, we would acquire for multiple purposes. Um, we just, we can't be a community forest because we have no access to Crown land because of the ENN grant. <laughs> so all we have is private land that we're acquiring. Um, and we are uh, 500 acres in directly adjacent to our village and still working on working forest zoning. Um, which is great because as soon as that changes, it'll be out of reach. James, uh, when we were uh, talking about this on Twitter, I mean, obviously here in Northern BC, we're dealing with a very different situation. We're dealing with uh, land being alienated crown land, forest leases, tree farm licenses and the like sitting there on public land. And you're saying you, you've been a longtime advocate for the democratization of the BC Forest Ministry bureaucracy. So take us into what that proposal would look like, how you could have local uh, voters um, having an impact on forest decision-making come the municipal elections in 2022. Right, well, I wouldn't say that I've, I've been a long time advocate of that because for a long time, you know, I, I believe the idea that that these forests are publicly owned and that we do have, uh, you know, that the crown is kind of running the show out here, but uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities between what's happening up here and, and, and what Megan's describing down on the Island. And that's basically that, that effectively that these, these forests that have been privatized uh, and they've been monopolized by an increasingly smaller number of large corporations. So, you know, back, back in the day, there used to be a lot of different little small mills, each with their own, uh, area that they could harvest from and then you know the big guys and, and Prince George is mostly canned for now and Quinnell that would be West Fraser purchased all these licenses and uh, you know consolidated them into these uh, these huge areas and and rights they have to our public timber and they can just basically do they're doing whatever they want and I think like the, the glyphosate issue kind of taps right into that and it's one of those things where it has a huge impact on the land base, but nobody really sees it happening. It's like, you know, they spray a place that might be gray and looks kind of crappy for a few years, but then it, it greens up with all the pine trees again. And you've got these expanses of green looking, you know, healthy looking forest, but it's just one tree type, right? It's, it's mostly lodgepole pine, like in a lot of the areas around Prince George. And, and it, it's basically, they've, they've squeezed out other air users of the forest from that, you know, like, by getting rid of deciduous species like aspen, you undermine cattle ranching, you undermine the hunters, you undermine uh, trapping, 
uh, and a lot of other, you know, historic uses of the landscape are getting kind of tossed by the wayside, all for the needs and interests of these increasingly large and agglomerated corporate entities. And so, you know, kind of working on this issue in the last couple of years, that's where I sort of started to realize that, wow, things are, are really not looking good. And you write letters to the district forester and uh, you're not, you know, you make zero headway, right? We're not making any progress on this issue. It's business as usual. And not to mention, like, there's a whole other factors. It's not just the users of the forest that are getting impacted by conifer plantation forestry. It's fire resilience of the forest. It's uh, water retention of the forests. It's, uh, you know, how that mitigates climate change, all sorts of different factors. And none of those, none of those interests, none of those voices are being heard here locally in the district office. So, so the way it works is we have district managers that have a lot of legislative authority on, on a lot of decision-making processes here locally. And that person is appointed by uh, the province, right? So down in Victoria. And I, I can go on and on into various aspects, but uh, if, yeah, if you want to stop me, uh, jump in there, Stuart. So you were proposing direct election of district forest managers. That needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I mean, we should have local local control over basic decision making that's affecting our forests. Because I mean, all of the all of the regulatory framework that applies to Prince George forests was basically concocted in Victoria with different ecosystems in mind. Right. I think they a lot of people assume that we're all caught up for forests up here. And that's the model that they're being that they're implementing on the landscape. And it's not all conifer, like we're heavy deciduous, you know, and just as a little, a, a little anecdote or example, the Bobtail Lake area, which is southwest of Prince George, uh, they did a recent uh, study on the forest cover there, and it was 20% aspen, 20% deciduous. And if you look at the regulations around reforestation, they require at the most 5% deciduous right? It's got to be 95% conifer at a minimum. So, I mean, it's out of whack with the natural ecosystem. Like, where did that number come from? It came from somebody in the Ministry of Forest down in Victoria coming up with an arbitrary number uh, that they thought was suitable to the, you know, the tipsy model that governs how much these big forest companies can harvest every year. I mean, that's the only consideration that they, they looked into, from what I can tell. So, it's not based on local ecology. It's not based on the local needs, I think, of the people, and why don't we have control over that? And uh, I think it's important to recognize, we often, uh, when we look back at the 90s, we remember the NDP's proclamation of the Forest Practices Code, and what it did was it appended all kinds of advice to forestry legislation, but it was non-binding advice, and so the office we're talking about, the district forest manager, is the person who has authority over that code and what portion of it is implemented. And uh, that, while the enforceability, while the spirit of the government around the code has changed, that regulatory change has been there for some time. Uh, now, Darcy, you got 11% of the vote in the last election uh, running on a rural BC platform of like democratizing things in rural BC and on the land base. Um, what were the things that um, you were putting forward as a candidate 
um, to uh, to make these uh, uh, to make forest policy more responsive to the communities. Well, I think uh, you know first of all, James has done a ton of excellent work on this issue, and uh, certainly um, you know our. Uh, approach to moving forward echoes many of the concerns that he has about the sustainability of those industries in our area. Um, for us, we're really um, wanting to take a landscape level planning approach to rural BC and make sure that we're reintegrating all of uh, those local stakeholders in that decision-making process, which really echoes uh, um, you know, the approach that James is talking about, about uh, having more local authority over what we're doing, uh, not just with the forest, but in general with the development of our communities, the agricultural land base and uh, other resources. Um, one seismic shift that um, we're very aware of here right now is the ongoing negotiations. Of course, we're on unceded territories here. And uh, um, we know that there's been some major uh, uh, movement towards uh, settlements and agreements in land use and land control. Uh, the Lake Babian Nation recently uh, was awarded control of 20,000 hectares just north of where I live. And uh, everybody's watching the negotiations with the Wet'suwet'en. Um, which unfortunately are not as transparent as we would like to see because, uh, you know, we're all living here together and, and we, we believe that the government should be transparent in um, the negotiations they're conducting. Uh, that being said, I'm quite excited about it. Uh, I think it's long overdue and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that affects the discussion we're having right now. Uh, as we see these agreements come into effect and the First Nations, the Indigenous people here having much more influence in what's going on on the land base. So, you know, for me as a candidate and for our party, I think we're, uh, you know, very uh, uh, motivated to engage more with the First Nations leadership, both hereditary and elected in our region um, to, again, try and uh, get ahead of the ball, get ahead of the curve. It was something that I said several times during the election is that we, we have to stop being reactive. We have to start taking that 60,000 foot view and try and mitigate the negative effects of what we're seeing right now with the different uh, collapses in, in our forest industry and in our forest uh, ecology. Um, I grew up in Mackenzie. And I don't think there is a better example of a forestry town that really wasn't properly supported by the government, was dominated by industry. And, uh, you know, again, it's been through incredible roller coaster ride over the last decade or more. And, uh, you know, up to this past summer when Conifex pulled out and, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's poor management. And as you said, going all the way back to the 1990s, we've kind of watched it develop and seen it coming. And yet somehow our elected officials in Victoria, maybe through sheer detachment, have failed to act on it. And, and now uh, we're really in a bit of a dire situation in rural BC. And I think creative approaches like James has laid out are really um, imminently necessary right now. So um, to sort of give this, you want your 60,000 foot view, uh, I want to put this in an international context. So once you're south of the Rio Grande in this hemisphere, 
the debate that we're talking about is called the land reform debate. And land reform projects um, have tended to have tended to deliver the most to indigenous communities. So uh, land reform in Mexico or Bolivia or Colombia, Nicaragua, um, governments have gotten into power with a land reform agenda. Um, but if we look at the Mexican model, it's if you put together a co-op, the co-op goes before the government. And if the government likes the co-op's plan for running that land, the land is transferred. And the, what are the things, that, what are the government's criteria? Uh, and this is obviously pre-NAFTA because NAFTA, we demanded during the NAFTA negotiations that this whole system be destroyed. Uh, but um, the, uh, the idea uh, was pre-NAFTA that um, you'd look at a community and go, well, are they already on the land? What are their economic needs? What are the talents uh, that they're bringing to this project? And even though this was an indigenously driven agenda and the primary beneficiaries are indigenous people, there was no separate path for settlers versus indigenous people. Uh, in Nicaragua and uh, in uh, other countries with a significant uh, uh, with a significant uh, population of uh, descendants of slaves, uh, often people were in racialized rural communities, but they were communities that had been founded in the 16th century by escaped slaves. And in the Nicaraguan land reform model, those people were included. Um, and in Mexico, plenty of non-Indigenous people benefited from these co-ops and organized these co-ops. People of African descent organized these co-ops. And so you had rural working class folks um, of all backgrounds who were part of these land reform processes. North of the Rio Grande, we've taken a very different approach, right? We've created separate paths for control of land that are largely contingent on um, who people can trace their ancestry to. And I wanted to talk about how we can bring, how we might make these paths converge a little more, because in many ways, the project Megan is doing is an example of something the Mexican government would have approved before 1994. And I'm interested in, you know, how are things going with the Puntledge and Comox people? Are they, are they in that conversation or are they, are they on a different path, a parallel path? And I'd ask the same of, uh, of Darcy and James, um, you know, Darcy's spoken to it a bit, but how do we, how do we develop um, a way of moving forward with democratization that isn't viewed as a win or a loss for settlers or indigenous folks? Um, and I think I'll just, uh, Megan, throw in observations. Uh, I mean, it's a harder one for me to, uh, it's a harder one to respond to here because there's another layer that has to be completely unpacked or blown up before that second conversation can even start to unfold, which is the private ownership of land. So, I mean, as we said, as I said in the text back and forth, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this, but 
I, we're not even a place where we're negotiating with our with the state to come up with another model. Uh, we're not negotiating with the state. The state has abdicated responsibility under the Private Managed Forest Lands Act. They've established a board that is an industry-led board to govern the actions on the landscape. Um, they've uh, developed the Water Sustainability Act, but failed to implement regulations that allow us to use the drinking water or the watershed protection regulatory card to, to protect forest lands. So the conversation, I mean, I am, I'm, I'm thrilled with, um, uh, you know, Chief Rempel and the Comox First Nation right now, we have a very ecologically driven uh, local um, band government. They're very small. We have very, they're very small in our, in our particular region. So resource stretched, but they've been amazing. Um, but the starting point that I have to deal with with people, so Pentledge is a great example, like, or the Pentledge people, but I was going to say the Pentledge River as well, which is the Pentlatch, right? Pentlatch is the, where the people, and then Pentledge is the anglicized sort of version of that, of that name. People are saying, well, there's, you know, well, it's not right that a logging company can own the river. They can't own the river and own the land and, and do all that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, absolutely. And how is it right that you own the land in the house that you live, right? They're wanting, there's some sort of divide here where somehow as the conservation movement, we're supposed to be fighting to undermine the private land entitlements of the, the timber companies, but nobody else is actually willing to make the sacrifice and blow up capitalism at the same time. So the irony is we're having to engage in, in capitalism in order to achieve our objectives because there really isn't the courage politically, socially, or otherwise because it undermines our individual securities. So I'm definitely dealing with cognitive dissonance in the project that we're engaged in, like no question, because the underlying thing is it's all unceded territory. There were no treaties signed on Vancouver Island. Um, we are all on occupied land. And, and the irony is not lost on us as an organization that we are acquiring stolen land from timber companies separate from indigenous government. It, it's absurd, but, we, but I go back to the race that I think that we're in a race right now. Um, and, we're in a, and we're in a race to, um, uh, to restore whatever portions of the commons we can so that we can democratize um, <clears throat> land management in the interests of climate resilience, ecological resilience and biodiversity. Um, we need, I, I, I believe we need to do that. And I am willing to engage in whatever tactics are necessary to get that land into a separate ownership. Uh, if we had crown land, I'd be involved in a very different type of work right now. Um, but, but ultimately we need to blow up the Private Managed Forest Lands Act and we need to govern uh, private managed forest lands um, uh, with the same, well, I would say with the same rigor as Crown, but that's ridiculous. So we need to up the game for everybody. Um, but we're in a race against time. And I think this is really being expressed also by the folks that are doing work related to the old growth right now, is that there's this long sort of drawn out discussion or, or policy discussion happening. Well, at the same time, we're literally destroying the biodiversity of our forests. And we have the same issue here. The entire forest is privately uh, managed. So of course, they're um, pushing any deciduous growth out of the, the local ecosystems. And we have the, the, the exact same, same issue here in the forest with um, that it's being treated in the way for the greatest financial return. So I don't know what I'm saying is I, I guess that we're operating, you know, a bunch of socialists operating in a complete state of cognitive dissonance, engaging heavily in capitalism, buying private land, and we'll figure out the details later, um, which is a little bit different than other scenarios. But uh, it really has this sense of urgency and, and race against time. And that's why in some ways, I think some of us are undermining our, our foundational uh, 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 philosophical principles just to get the work done. 
If I could just ask one follow-up question before I go to James. Now, this land, though, it um, this is not like um, land trusts in Costa Rica, right? This land, you're placing back in the hands of the public. You're transferring yeah, it to the regional district under a covenant. Yeah. So in your case, um, there, there are regional district elections that, yeah. uh, that will feed public input into what the vision is within the context of the covenant you've placed it's on true. the land. Yeah, no, good point. So the, yeah, the acquisition we're doing isn't holding it because the nonprofit would still be in that we considered actually a private holder, right? That we are intentionally and deliberately putting ecological um, constraints or putting land use constraints and then transferring to municipal government. But we also are partners here work with um, regional government as well. So yeah, we're functioning like a land trust, um, uh, acquiring land, uh, strongly defining appropriate use or not use, usually through language of limitation as opposed to what you shall do, it's what you shall not do with this landscape, and then transferring it to local government and then engaging politically with local government. Um, and, and having, and you know, we're also in an interesting scenario here because we have multiple uh, small, smaller municipal governments within a regional district. There's a lot of fragmentation as a result of that, but there's also a huge amount of opportunity to influence those smaller elections. So every time we talk about moving towards an amalgamation within our region, I get nervous because right now we have actually some very strong um, sort of word, it's almost like a word system, but it's not, um, really strong councils. And we're really feeling like they are community connected. Uh, you know, I would be more concerned about a broad based regional um, election because I don't think we're there yet in terms of the balance of power leaning towards uh, ecological resilience and, um, and, uh, and um, the good things that we want to do with the land. How have I lost my words? But yeah, um, we're not quite there yet. If we threw it out to the masses, I wouldn't be necessarily confident in the results. So I'm glad we're dealing with small municipal governments. Well, you've got like the third best airport in BC. And so there are, there are a lot of flights to uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, yeah. Regina, a lot of pension fund money there from people For who sure. they have can. a huge connection. They tend to be the greener prairie dwellers, though, that tend to, to move to the coast. I mean, we've, we've received a great deal of support um, from people who have, you know, made their living in oil and gas and land and then have moved to the island and are assaging their guilt by throwing money at our trivia nights. Well, that's excellent news. Now, James, in your sort of vision of a more democratic uh, experience of forest decision making here, how do you see... Um, Indigenous government and Indigenous uh, citizens interfacing with this um, with this greater degree of democracy. Uh, are we on parallel streams? Is it consultation? What does that look? Like? Yeah, I mean, just just like on most of the islands, uh, you know, other than on the other side of the Rockies, there was there was never a treaty signed with the with the Indigenous nations of this area, right? So, you know, legally it's theirs and. There needs to be an arrangement made with with how to how to reconcile you know the the present system we have with with those those claims and rights that have never been addressed. Uh, you know, taught, speaking here down in in Punchaw, south of south of Prince George, uh, one of the things here is like, well, I think in Prince George in general is is the First Nations is a pretty the, the government the Clayton Tene is a is a pretty small regional government and and you know they they've got their concerns with environmental issues and. And those kinds of things, but it's a huge area, right? And it's it's probably a lot bigger than what they're able to deal with. Like I know with the glyphosate spraying issue, we've brought it up 
with with the band office and and it's kind of it's not really a priority because the, well they, they haven't really gotten back to us about it or made made much of a stink about it and i think it's just because they're overwhelmed with with industry um re- making requests to them because you know they're they are required to consult on same things so what they're doing is they're just kind of um overwhelming the the band office with all these projects that they're doing and i don't think they they have the resources or the time to really deal with them all or, or challenge them where they need where they need challenging. And at the end of the day, like the, the question I think we need to ask is, is are the corporations still going to be in control? You know, is, is there still going to be this fundamental power imbalance where, uh, where they're in, where the, their economic power basically gets to steamroll and gets to pursue what they want. And, you know, regardless if it's indigenous or, settlers who um have an issue you know at the end of the day it's going to be the corporations that uh that went out and i think that'll be the challenge you know with, with a lot of the i think that like the big corporations of the world the canfors they invest a lot in that relationship with with first nations and you know why are they doing that well it's because they want to to get what they want out of the deal whoever whoever ends up um you know ho- however the uh, the the dice may fall in the negotiations and the settlements. So I think that's the thing that we really need to watch out for and make sure that there is a way for democracy against the corporations to prevail in whatever sense. So I'm not sure how that's going to look. This is CFUR 88.7. I'm Stuart Parker, and this is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. It's Monday, April the 12th, and we return you now to our panel discussion on democratizing British Columbia's land use decisions. Yeah, and I I think that that a a crucial element of that has got to be a solidarity among everybody who is not uh, in that but that, a lot of that solidarity was undermined both uh, during the fall down effect and then the repeal of the appurtenance legislation, right? It used to be that a lot more indigenous people had bushwork, but when it came time to start cutting bushworkers and we lost 80% of our woodworkers, we all know that indigenous communities were, um, were disproportionately affected, that indigenous workers were the most likely to lose their jobs during the major job culls of the 80s and 90s to the point where by the time we were in the 21st century, we didn't even remember how much of the bushwork was being done by uh, indigenous folks. So I wanted to ask, we've had... Um, one of the things that, that will happen uh, that will alienate rural folks, whether they're settlers or indigenous, is something like Naomi Klein's Leap Manifesto, where environmentalists, urban environmentalists come along and they say, you know what, we're going to go green and everybody's going to get richer and everybody's going to do better and we're going to make so much money from alternative energy. And people just go, no, we know what happens when people say that. Um, It means they're gonna make money and we're gonna lose our jobs. Um, And so we've got, uh, and so I think there's a real uh, problem in forging forging coalitions because of that 
how do we present to people the idea that uh, that the changes we're going to make are going to be done equitably? That a particular group, be they rural people, be they indigenous people, won't bear the brunt of the changes that have to happen. Darcy, you were in an election. Obviously, people ask you questions about this stuff. What's your, what was your response? Uh, well, pretty much our priority number one, or, or our, our first highlight point, was that we need to have a Ministry of Rural Development. That's it. We need to have a ministry that is dedicated to modernizing our economy and making it more sophisticated in the rural areas of BC so that we can maximize the number of jobs and the economic benefit that our local communities, Indigenous and settler, gain from participating in the economy on our landscape. And I was really pretty stunned um, given the premier's comments after the election of how he felt that he needed to do a better job with people in rural BC. And he had a recommendation from his former chief of staff to actually start developing this kind of a, a, a ministry or, or engagement with people in rural areas. And we were waiting for the minister appointments and then I was stunned to see that they didn't follow through and they did not uh, create that ministry. Um, they created a, a, um, a parliamentary secretary, secretary of rural development. But to be honest with you, Rowley's uh, uh, work has very little to do with the things that we're talking about here. So, um, you know, I think that is a really key thing is that we need to actually have a government that believes in, in the future of our rural areas and that we can do this kind of economic development sustainably. And, you know, I think people like me that are up here and looking at the resources that are in our, our region know that there's absolutely no reason that we can't move forward and create sustainable economies that are diversified, that they're, they're not just about logging. Um, or mining or oil and gas. And there are other places in the world with very similar climates and very similar land bases that we can look to for examples of how that can be done. And honestly, I'm just baffled at how our government just continues to fail to engage in that, uh, that work. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's really disappointing to watch our rural representatives fail to stand up for us on many of these issues. And as you know, you know, unrelated to today's uh, conversation, I've been working very hard on other issues that are just straight up inequities between rural British Columbians and urban ones. And, uh, you know, I think that's going to have a huge lashback if you see someone pushing a LEAP manifesto and people are going to be going, well, we're already paying for your automobile insurance and your bridges. What more do you want from us? It's time for us to get a little bit back. Now, James, you were um, uh, Michael Morris, uh, anti-glyphosate activist, now two-term member of the legislature for Prince George Mackenzie, is a person uh, who... Um, uh, you certainly helped put where he was. He was he's grateful for that. He sat in a liberal caucus, um, continues to sit on the, the liberal backbench with this anti-glyphosate agenda. Um, I guess my my question is a, is a twofold for you. Um, how do you um, how could I mean, they, there's no question of the, like the personal good faith of a guy like Mike Morris. Um, 
how do we actually make that representation meaningful? And how do we do that without appearing to be um, tied to international environmental interests rather than local interests? Oh yeah, great, great, uh, great question. Um, I mean, the, the, the state of democracy in the province, the way it is, uh, first past the post, is really unfortunate. We never got that uh, proportional representation passed there uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, yeah, Mike, I like Mike. He's a, he's a good guy. I think he, he's, um, he means what he says on this issue, but at the same time, he's in a party that doesn't really believe it, right? I mean, John Rustad is the guy that calls the forestry shots and he says ridiculous things. Uh, so I, I just, I don't have an answer for you there on, on how to do that other than some, some kind of way to devolve power to regional, regional areas, you know, along the ideas of, uh, subsidiarity where the people that are most affected by a policy get to have control over it, you know? So uh, the expectation that we can create change in Victoria on a policy that basically only affects like four or five ridings in the central interior they don't care okay they they they've got uh, way more population to worry about way more issues down there to to focus on they're not going to be worried about uh, letting a few more aspen grow around prince george and you know it, it also ties into the media so you've got the legislative press gallery in victoria who the politicians follow every word of theirs, right? That's how it works. I worked in the legislature back in 2006 for the NDP in, in opposition. Like I know how, uh, I know how the agenda is set. It's set by what's in the Vancouver sun that day. What are the headlines of that day? You know, it was so hard to get issues that weren't in the popular press taken seriously by your own party. You, you come up with some, a good issue and, and to, to try to get them to lead with that. It was like, it was like, you know, pulling teeth. It just, so I, so what I think the problem is, is we need to have more devolution of power to regional districts, um, more power, like the regional districts should have more power uh, themselves, maybe some, you know, we need to think of electing our regional district representatives as, as being something that's almost as significant as electing our local MLA. So I mean, expecting Mike Morris to kind of solve that problem, I, I think isn't really realistic. Like we need, we need institutional reforms on, on how democracy in this province works. It's too big. It's a huge place and everything's controlled by the lower mainland. That's the reality. Megan. Oh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the small number of people that were brought in at the beginning of March to punch through the road and bring in a couple of fellow bunchers and some road clearing equipment. It was all of, you know, this, the six people working for one of the remaining locally owned timber companies here and you know, naming no names who expressed to other people that they didn't even want to go in and harvest where the, the, the landowners were wanting them to harvest at this point. It's too close to the creeks. If they were within their own control, they would have never actually you know, supported a harvest that we've just interrupted recently. I mean, it is absurd that we are dealing with a multi, several multinational corporations um, who are who are managing the land base on Vancouver Island? It's it's utterly absurd to watch um, uh, this a small number of people make a decent living, uh, but hardly uh, anyone really working in the workforce. And then we're exporting. I mean, it's the same. I feel like I'm in a time warp when I say. And then we're ex we're exporting the raw logs off the landscape. Um, uh, it's it is we continue to export the resources for the benefit of large multinational corporations and to the cost of 
of the people who live in the community who are creative and who are innovative and who are willing to actually make sacrifices around our quality of life or our amenity expectations or all of those things. We choose to live in a rural or quasi-rural environment. We're not asking it to be something um, other than that. Um, but it, but when we are watching, be it, um, well, and then we go back to the regulatory bodies. Um, you know, we've gone, the, the, the NDP came in strong with three uh, forest management review processes. The recommendations from local government were clear and consistent. I really appreciate what James was saying about regional um, uh, governments. Um, and, uh, and it was clear that returning community control to the regional government level on water and forestry was being said by mainstream regional district bureaucrats. I, I'm actually have hope because that's where that message was coming from. Um, all of those documents are down on the shelf right now. I mean, I can't assume what's happening in the offices and all the great robust philosophical conversations that are happening down in Victoria right now, but I frankly doubt they are. I think all those documents are sitting on the shelf. The answers have been mapped out. We watched regional governments work with each other cooperatively, work with Indigenous government to provide feedback on these reviews. The reviews are there. The recommendations are there from these, from, uh, from smaller communities. And, and it is on the province to do exactly what we're talking about, implement the recommendations and transfer power. I totally agree with James in terms of that regional government um, focus. And these folks responded um, earnestly to the, to the request for feedback on legislation. We were reviewing line by line legislation and offering feedback. This wasn't a, you know, a cheesy, you know, 20 question survey, you know, inter you know, I mean, there was the public component that was that these were well thought out. What is wrong with the legislation? How is it compromising community drinking water? How is it compromising local community economic development? And, uh, and, and then we continue, um, uh, we continue to, it's just like, I look at the two issues intersecting, like we're exporting all of this incredible resource to the benefit of multinational corporations. And simultaneously, we are receiving global capital, which is crushing the housing market. And every time I start mashing those two things together, people are like, oh no, those are two different issues. And I'm like, in your mind, they're two different issues. In my mind, this is what's keeping me up at night. Global, the capital is leaving in this form and compromising rural community. And then it's arriving back into the country in this form and compromising the ability of people to remain sustainably housed. Like the two are, they're wedded, they are wedded and it has to do with power and control and capital. Um, and until we figure out with teeth, until government can figure out some way to start to chip away at that power and control, I'm, I'm not sure what we're gonna do other than try and beat them at their own game one trivia night at a time. So, once again, want to go back to our larger hemispheric context, right? Because the Latin American countries that have been, that brought in land reform, that substantively democratized their land base, um, one of the things that tends to happen, one of the first things you do once you get a little control over your economy is something called import substitution industrialization, right? You start building secondary industry so less stuff leaves your jurisdiction. Now, the elite in your jurisdiction, their job for transnational capital, it's, you, we live in Prince George, right? Glenn Clark's the head of the Patterson Group. Glenn Clark's still in charge of our lives here. And right when Glenn Clark was premier, he brought in a lot of forest policy we didn't like, some fossil fuel policy I really didn't like. But ultimately, Glenn Clark was brought down 
by the financial elites of this province because he tried to create a shipbuilding industry here, right? He invested in import substitution industrialization and the need to destroy the shipbuilding industry he was building and delegitimate it and make sure another ship was never built here again was the agenda of the BC Chamber of Mines, the BC Council of Forest Industries and everybody else because those people who ship out our raw logs, who ship out our coal knew their jobs were on the line. And those, those industries began to suffer because of an international capital strike, right? The BC Chamber of Mines and Greenpeace were both doing European boycott BC tours at the same time. And that uh, in the 90s, it was a wild time, right? So in Latin America, when people decide to do this, they know the hammer is going to fall. And they don't just expect a capital strike like we get. They expect troops. They expect assassinations. Um, because the entire global economic system requires a periphery, a place where the raw resources come from to be taken to another region to be manufactured. And one of the things where I sort of knew the fate of this government was wrought from the very beginning, I was at a celebration event for when the Greens and NDP signed their deal in 2017. And I was there with some fairly senior New Democrats because they hadn't fully figured out what sort of man I am. And so I'm there with Premier Clark, uh, with Premier Horgan's press secretary. And, saying, well, and I'm saying, well, what's the plan for the capital strike, guys? And it's like, no, 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 we will do anything in our power to avoid a capital strike. There was a capital strike last time and it destroyed our party, it destroyed our government. We nearly didn't come back to life. We will do whatever it takes to prevent a capital strike. And so what, um, what I'm wondering is like, are, and again, I think this is like the Naomi Klein problem of not selling people on how hard something will be or what the sacrifices will, will be required. Um, and I guess that's, that's where I wanna go last. This plan, although it will benefit us in the long-term, involves people who are pushed really hard right now, whether it's by the lower mainland housing market or whether it's by the collapse of forestry and mining jobs in rural BC, we have to ask them to make more sacrifices in order to get to a better place. How do we do that? How do we sell that sacrifice? Uh, let's go to Darcy then. Uh, I think that we have to show them a better future. I, I think that uh, we have to get ahead of the curve. We have to actually do our research. We have to actually show them what this diversification of economy can look like. And we need to protect ourselves with that plan. We need to actually make sure that we have uh, an economic development plan that isn't going to be crushed by a capital strike by these multinational corporations. And, you know, right now, it's not a terrible time to do it when you see companies like Conifex that are already pulling, pulling the rug out from under us, you know. Um, I think if everybody was sitting back in the 80s when Northern BC's had some of the highest per capita income that Canada's ever seen, um, you'd be really uh, facing a tough slog to make that pitch. I think right now people have been through enough ups and downs and we're 
hitting as much of a down right now that the opportunity is there. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I keep referring to the incredible revolution of the internet combined with our transportation systems and how that opens up the opportunity for us to do um, secondary production and manufacturing of our, our raw resources. Um, there's no doubt that we're gonna see some pretty serious hits to our communities if we're moving towards this transition. Um, my personal feeling is that we're gonna see those much worse if we don't. And so again, I think uh, the key to making that pitch is to actually do the work get some big brains that are throughout the province in these rural areas to sit down and actually develop a real plan for our landscape from that 60,000 foot view that includes local energy sources, that includes how we're going to maximize the value from our timber and non-timber forest resources, what we can do with our agricultural industry, which we're not even talking about here today, but in our part of BC, I mean, the opportunity is enormous and there's nothing happening. So, you know, it's really about, I think, uh, making the plan, making that sales pitch, showing people what a better future can look like. Uh, James. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, the, slaughter, the lack of slaughterhouses in the, the interior as a, as a great example of this, this whole problem. And, and you know, uh, back to Megan's uh, point, Point there about a lot of work that has been done that was about regionalization of economies. Well, you know, there's been so much work done about setting up some kind of relaxing the regulations around slaughtering animals and selling them to the local population up here, and nothing's happened. Like it's just a perennial topic of discussion, and there's never any any resolution to it. So there's like you know, there's one kind of inspected facility here in Prince George. It's not enough to to meet the demand by any sense of the means. There's quite a few ranches up here and a lot of animals that that we have to send to Alberta to these huge meat packers because that's the only place you can sell them there's just no and then it gets shipped back to Prince George and we buy it at the Savon and support Jimmy Pattison right there's like the, the opportunity to have uh people directly involved with food production and consumption and the economy is huge and, and people want that I mean the with the COVID-19 thing it's it's such a great example of of the benefits of this and people people have a real desire to make this happen and it's not happening because victoria is victoria and they're not going to respond to our issues we're just you know a little town of eighty thousand people it's not a priority seems to i mean that's the best explanation i can come up with uh, uh so and... that's that's one yep sorry go ahead uh, go ahead no what i was just gonna you know keep uh talking about forestry and uh you know fire like there's so many examples that where people are being shortchanged here like firewood uh you can't legally sell commercial firewood i don't think a lot of people know that but if you want to sell firewood to someone that's gotta that wood has to come off your own private land and if you want to sell it off public land well you need to uh get a license to do that you could get maybe a small scale salvage license you got to probably hire a forester if you want to cut down some dead pine you have to scale that wood. So you'd have to go and uh, measure it and report it to the government, pay stumpage on it. You know, like for a small person who's just trying to make a thousand bucks a month selling firewood, there's there's no way that that's going to be profitable when you have all these things to jump through. But for these big companies who the whole system is set up for, they can afford to do that, right? They can hire a forester for the same cost and do a thousand hectare clear cut pretty much. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. The the opportunity that is there to take 
our natural resources back from these big megacorps and give it to the local people. It's a huge, a huge opportunity. And the other thing about this capital flight stuff, you know, like you read Vaughn Palmer's articles, whenever he talks about forestry, there's always this lingering threat that if uh, the NDP does anything, uh, they're going to scare away all the capital and they're going to run away and invest in their mills, you know, but they've already been doing that. They've like can't for like half their production is now in the U S South. And, you know, they bought a bunch of mills in Sweden. Like they're like Darcy says, they're, they're already on the way out. And, you know, the value was never in that technology, all that money they spent on technology. That was just to fire people. Okay. That's what a lot of people don't recognize, or maybe they do. They just don't want to admit it, but we've lost 40,000, 45,000 forestry jobs in this province since 1997. And almost all of that can be due to investment, can due to technology, automation, these big machines. Like I have a little woodworking company, right? I, I, uh, you don't need a lot of investment to make money off of our assets. The value is in the public timber. You can, a chainsaw, a wood miser, you know, $50,000, you can, you can be pumping out lumber. That's the reality of it. And nobody wants to talk about that. Well, and I think also you bring up a really important point. One of the things about the neoliberal economic reforms we've had for the past 30 years is the voluntary compliance principle. And there's no government in the world that believes in it more strongly than Canada. And that means externalizing the state's regulatory costs to the corporations so that they self-police. And we all know what that ends up looking like and what forestry or other professionals know they have to say to stay in work in a system like that. So I will leave the uh, last words uh, to uh, Megan. We've managed to chew up a good portion of an hour. I'm pretty happy with this. Um, last words on uh, what do we say to people who feel like they've made enough sacrifices? Um, I just am going right back to the, taking democratizing forestry and just pulling it to uh, democratizing community economic development and getting out of the hands of land developers and commodity sellers and you know real estate barons and resource extractors and having economic development at the local level being you know right now you'll silo an input process in a local government planning process and the economic development voice will come from the local chamber of commerce right and then you have the ag voice and the forestry voice and i think that like absolutely tearing down the silos between those things looking at community economic development is the overarching and you know if a realist you know if land developers want a voice at the table they can have one little voice at the table with the myriad other industries rather than that driving the economic development agenda so uh, you know and again there's opportunity there because most regions do have an economic development arm but it's usually a little bit nascent it's um underdeveloped a little bit you know hasn't doesn't actually have an identity other than sort of parroting sort of bc chamber of commerce advocacy at the local level we have just we're in the process of successfully dismantling our economic development function in the Comox Valley, uh, a cause that I have been proudly involved in for 20 years and I'm celebrating uh, day by day as I see uh, the castle falling of our local um, economic development um, organization. I'm excited and nervous what will come out of the ashes because I see it as an opportunity for ECDEV to be driven by uh, uh, climate resilience, ecological health and social justice. Um, but I'm worried that the building blocks that are going to get put back in place are the same, just with different, you know, masks on. So I think it would be to start to, to look at uh, community economic development as the overarching place and not to provide a separate voice 
um, for property speculation and resource extraction, but rather to have them figure out a way to integrate that voice into a community-led, community-driven, by forest, by ag, by First Nations, by culture, by art, by um, and and have all of those things held in in equal esteem uh, and power. Um, and uh, and let go of the 1950s uh, Chamber of Commerce model of community economic development, which most communities are still leaning on. And while we're doing that, I'll add in the other thing that I think is an important thing for us to all um, integrate into our work at the local level, which is to remind ourselves we can have fun um, and joyful, meaningful lives at the rural level, and that we actually don't have to hop on the plane to Vegas or Mexico or Vancouver for the big concert, but that we start to reclaim um, uh, community uh, joyfulness and celebration and, and the fall fair and the concert and the, and the, the spring you know, harvest fest and all of that. And we invest money in, in stop investing money in, in bullshit events that are driven by the economic development uh, arm of community and start doing it in a way that helps us all remember why we live where we live. Um, helping us to be place-based and grounded in the land and connected to the history of where we live and in charge of our own our own economies and stop letting uh, yeah the BC Chamber of Commerce land speculation model drive what economic development is in rural communities. Well, on that joyful note, I think we've had a meaningful, joyful call, and I hope this won't be the last one. I hope that. Uh, we do this in the uh, in the public sphere and um, in the uh, in the political sphere. Uh, it would be sure good to have a a joyful political movement putting this forward. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.